Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. This week, in honor of Veterans Day, we're focusing on post-traumatic epilepsy by revisiting two previous conversations with veterans impacted by PTE. But first, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Lauren Hart Hargrove to the podcast to provide us with a basic understanding of post-traumatic epilepsy and an overview of some of the research currently being done in this area. Dr. Hart Hargrove is the Associate Director of Research at Cure Epilepsy, where she is responsible for providing oversight of Cure Epilepsy's research portfolio and initiatives. She also acts as the project manager of the Cure Epilepsy Post-Traumatic Epilepsy Initiative, a team science program created with the help of a $10 million grant from the Department of Defense. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm super excited to share with everyone this major project that CURE has been working on for years now. But I think it's important that we start off with sort of basic uh, definitions of some words, because as you know, science loves to use acronyms and as they should, because no one should have to use words like uh, electroencephalogram on the regular. So to help our listeners out, can you tell us what exactly is TBI and PTE? Of course, that's a great place to start. So PTE stands for post-traumatic epilepsy and is a type of epilepsy that can occur after a traumatic brain injury or TBI. Great. And so what are some examples of a traumatic brain injury? Well, there are a number of ways to sustain a traumatic brain injury, and it could be someone who just has an accidental fall and bumps their head. Uh, It could be a TBI that happens during a car accident um, or during a sports-related incident. For our military service members, they may sustain a TBI during the line of duty. So, for example, it could be a blast or a penetrating brain injury. And in fact, all of these different types of traumatic brain injuries put a person at risk for developing post-traumatic epilepsy or PTE. So let's dive into that relationship a little bit more. You say that uh, anyone who experiences a TBI is more likely to develop post-traumatic epilepsy. What is the relationship between the two? Well, there's a lot that we know uh, about the relationship between TBI and PTE, but there's a lot that we don't know that we're still working on understanding. So we understand that post-traumatic epilepsy can develop in uh, as little as weeks after a traumatic brain injury. It could be months. uh, It could be even years. Most people will develop PTE within the first two years after a traumatic brain injury. But again, it can be, uh, you know, past two years, many years after that original traumatic brain injury. We understand that a person who sustains a severe TBI uh, is more likely to develop post-traumatic epilepsy, but there's still a lot that we don't understand about what puts a person at risk for developing PTE after TBI. And that's what we're working to understand right now. What puts a person at risk uh, and what are those mechanisms that are occurring in the brain after a traumatic brain injury that lead to post-traumatic epilepsy? What does post-traumatic epilepsy look like? Is it similar to just sort of um, your generic run-of-the-mill popped up out of nowhere, don't know why it's happening epilepsy? Well, PTE happens after this period of time that is 
called the epileptogenic period. So epileptogenesis is the development of epilepsy. And so there is a period of time after TBI um, before PTE happens. And so there's actually a period in which we could intervene if we understood more about um, PTE, but it is a recurrent seizure disorder. And so people who have sustained a traumatic brain injury and then develop PTE are having recurring seizures. Now, we do have some medications that could treat this, but the medications that we have, um, you know, many of them do not work on everyone and there can be unwanted side effects. And so there can be really a great burden on not only the person who develops PTE um, and who is having these recurring seizures, but also their caregivers and their loved ones and their family members. Um, and so, you know, it could be uh, things that occur such as cognitive decline or uh, comorbidities like depression can be associated with PTE. And so, you know, it, it really can have um, a profound impact on the lives of those who have sustained a TBI and developed PTE. So it's a lot more than just unwanted seizures. There is there is a greater impact on someone who is potentially in therapies and recovering and just trying to get back and make progress after that TBI. So Cure Epilepsy has partnered with the Department of Defense on a rather large research project, which is super exciting. And you sort of touched on it before, but can you explain a little more in depth why the DOD is so interested in post-traumatic epilepsy? Right. So, you know, people who serve in the military may be more exposed to having a traumatic brain injury just because of the uh, nature of the work. In fact, from 2000 to 2020, uh, over 400,000 active service members sustained a traumatic brain injury. And so that's a huge population who is then at risk for developing PTE. Now, even though we know that they may be at risk, we don't we can't identify who will develop PTE. And so this is a really big uh, unmet need that is ident was identified by the Department of Defense. Um, by and large, if a person has a diagnosis of epilepsy, they are unable to serve actively within the military. And so beyond that personal burden that we just talked about, you know, uh, the recurring seizures, the potential comorbidities, these individuals also are not able to serve that uh, any longer in the military. And so uh, this need was identified to be able to identify who is at risk for PTE following a traumatic brain injury, what's happening in the brain after a TBI that leads to PTE. And if we can understand that, we can develop a way to prevent the development of PTE altogether. Oh, love, love, love the sound of that. How does this um, relationship between cure epilepsy and the DOD work? How is this grant set up? Yeah, so this is a partnership. Uh, we received a $10 million grant and the work began in uh, 2015. We were granted this funding by a certain section of the DOD and it's a mouthful, but it's called the CDMRP or Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program, uh, Traumatic Brain Injury and Psychological Health Research Program. Uh, yes. It's, it's a lot to say, but we have this partnership now that was intended to develop this team science approach to studying post-traumatic epilepsy, and that is Cure Epilepsy's post-traumatic epilepsy initiative. Okay. Talk to us about team science, because I know this is something that Cure Epilepsy is very passionate about and something we've done before. 
That's right. So Cure Epilepsy really brought this concept of team science to the field of epilepsy with its infantile spasms initiative. And that was a team science approach to studying infantile spasms. So building on the success of that initiative, we are now using team science to study post-traumatic epilepsy. And you can think of it as, uh, you know, we have a multidisciplinary project, many different investigators. In fact, over 80 uh, senior PI, senior investigators, junior investigators, postdocs, uh, graduate students, all working together as parts of the puzzle, um, lending their different expertise. So we have six main teams, but we're meeting frequently uh, so that our teams can learn from one another, so that they can share data in real time. And what we've heard uh, from the feedback of our investigators working on the PTE initiative is that it's just so great to have this wide variety and this huge number of scientists coming together um, to you know understand this problem and to tackle PTE. And uh, you know we have also a panel of advisors that helps to guide us. And so this is really quite bigger than the the normal way that science is conducted. Can you give us a broad overview of some of the specific aspects that are being studied in this PTE initiative? Yes. So again, we have six teams, really teams of teams that are working on this. And we have several investigators that are researching better ways to study post-traumatic epilepsy in a laboratory setting. So they're developing what's called an animal model, something that can mimic uh, PTE in a human, but in an animal. And we need this so that we can be able to understand better what are those mechanisms that are occurring in the brain after a traumatic brain injury that lead to PTE. Uh, we also have several investigators that are looking uh, at clinical populations, so humans who have been affected by traumatic brain injury and are at risk for developing PTE. And the goal of those projects is really to follow these individuals, understand who is at risk? You know, who develops PTE? What puts them at risk? Is it something in the person's genetics that we can say, well, that puts them at greater risk? Or maybe there's something that we can measure in the person's blood, like a protein that would give an indication that that person is at greater risk. What we're trying to do really is develop what's called a biomarker, biomarkers. So some something that we can measure in a person who has had a traumatic brain injury that would let us know that that person is at risk for developing post-traumatic epilepsy and also understand the mechanisms at the same time of, of uh, you know, what's happening in the brain after a traumatic brain injury. And in that way, we can really reach our ultimate goal. So we're, we're laying the foundation here for what we need to do, which is take those individuals that are at risk for developing post-traumatic epilepsy and then develop a trial where we can find a way to prevent the development of post-traumatic epilepsy after traumatic brain injury. This particular study is, is focused more on our servicemen and women. And, but I, you know, you think about it in terms of the mom who was in a car accident and suffered a brain injury. And, you know, just being able to imagine that while they're in the hospital, being able to have a blood test done or an MRI and immediately know what their risk level is and to be able to start them on some medication. You just see so much potential and so many possibilities across the epilepsy spectrum. Lauren, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for, for everything that you do for Cure Epilepsy and heading up this program. We absolutely adore you and value you. And so just thank you so much. 
Well, thank you. I mean, it's been great being able to talk about it. And really, I just want to say it's a team effort. And so um, I would just like to thank all of our researchers that are out there hard at work. Absolutely. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Did you know that one in 26 Americans will develop epilepsy in their lifetime? For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn more about our mission to end epilepsy at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. In November of 2020, we spoke with retired Army Captain Patrick Oram and his wife Patty about the traumatic brain injury that he suffered while serving in Iraq in 2007 and the resulting post-traumatic epilepsy that impacted his recovery process. I'd been in the Army for almost 10 years, and uh, and, uh, 2007, that's when I, uh, I'd been in uh, Iraq for an, a year. And then uh, one night, we were going at, at night to uh, do a recon across the street, I guess. I'm not sure why, but I got two uh, Iraqis shot at us. And I got a shot right through my, uh, my, uh, my night vision that I was wearing. And so it exploded, and then from there it all just went into my uh, helmet. My helmet, yeah, or my brain also. And uh, I yeah, uh, there's a small flap in the helmet, so the bullet actually snuck inside the helmet. And I uh, I I passed out. I don't remember any of that. It was about two months. But uh, one of my soldiers, he. Uh, he was trying to call me on the radio, and then he ran back upstairs. And two of my soldiers had come over to see what I was doing, and he, um, my soldier, he uh, he took off my helmet and uh, and just saw that like half of my my brain was just gone. It was like destroyed. So yeah, they couldn't tell where the injury was, so they took off the helmet, which probably wasn't the best idea. And half his skull came off with it. Yeah. So they, it was incredible. They, they, we went from there, it was about 15, 10, 15 minutes away. We went to uh, Baghdad. And then uh, less than 10 minutes later, I was in a helicopter going to Balad. And I landed there like 45 minutes later. And um, they did the surgery right away. Took off 40% of my skull. And, um, and yeah, I, Pat was really lucky too, because that night he was the only one injured and, um, they had a clear road to get to the local field hospital. So that you hear about the golden hour, which he, he did get medical within an hour. So he was very lucky that night. Yeah. When I, when I got shot to Welland, I was in Bethesda, Maryland. They, it only took 36 hours. It sounds like it's a miracle that you're talking with us today. I, I mean, I just, I, I can't even imagine, nor do I want to. Um, did anyone mention post-traumatic epilepsy to you at this point? Well, yeah, I, um, I arrived at um, the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, but you arrived there late Sunday night. I took a red eye from Seattle, Washington, and I ran, arrived in DC uh, Monday morning, first thing, and was... Um, escorted to the hospital and got like a medical briefing right away. So he was in the ICU 
his head was so swollen, it looked normal, even though they had taken off um, probably 40% of the skull or had been um, fractured because of the bullet wound. Um, so one of the things on the, the list of probably 30 things that could go wrong was seizure. So they did say if Pat has a seizure within the first three weeks, that he would most likely pass away. So that was my first introduction to epilepsy. And did they say anything to you about what happens if he has a seizure after three weeks or to be on the lookout for that? No. So, um, I mean, that really stuck in my mind. And he did not have a seizure. And prophylactically, they gave him Keppra in the ICU for the first couple of weeks. So um, thankfully, at that point, we no epilepsy occurred. After six weeks, then I went to uh, RIC in Chicago. And uh, I was wearing a helmet. For rehabilitation, right? Yeah. So and we were in Chicago. We did, he did a lot of intense rehab. And they did give me this really great book on uh, brain injury recovery. And there was a section on epilepsy. Um, no one really spoke to me much about it in Chicago. It just gave me the book. And I remember seeing the page on it and thinking that um, it was a possibility. Um, but I just felt like, oh, you know, that's not, maybe that's not going to happen to us. But it did, unfortunately. And, it did. and can you tell us what happened when that, that first seizure occurred? I don't know anything to me happened, but uh, Patty said she woke up around like two o'clock in the morning and just all of a sudden I was having like a grandma seizure. <laughs> and Patty had no idea what a grandma seizure was. No. So It was probably the scariest moment in my entire life, honestly. I thought, I thought he was dying. It was four and a half months into recovery. And I thought, what in the world? You know, he came back a lot, you know, alive from this gunshot wound. We've worked really hard and now he's going to die tonight. That's. So <laughs> she went, ran outside or not in the other room, looked for a nurse and it took a couple minutes to find a nurse. And then they, the nurse went with Patty to the, my room and the nurse was like, Oh, she'll be, he'll be okay. He'll be okay. You know, he'll stop just having a seizure. Yeah. She identified as kind of normal for the, you know, brain injury that he had, but it was a full body, very violent convulsive seizure. Um, but at least like when it did surface, he was in bed, we were in a hospital, uh, we could get medical quickly. It was pretty amazing that night too, because it stopped and the nurse went away. And then 10 minutes later, it started again. So it was this rolling seizure situation, which was extremely dangerous. They called the paramedics from Northwestern, throw them on a gurney. We're running at like two in the morning through all these hallways because there's like these secret patches passageways from um, from RIC to Northwestern. So they had to get him on a dilantin drip like as soon as possible because it could cause more brain damage. So it was an exciting evening to say the least. But, um, but he did okay. Um, but... All the rehab that we'd worked on for months was just gone in like a blink. Yeah, that was going to be my very next question is just how, how did the appearance of seizures impact Pat's recovery? It was hard. I mean, most of his seizures were in the first couple of years, and that's when we were working the hardest and the brain was putting itself back together. He was making the most gains, but then we'd get these like 
horrible grand malls and we were doing all sorts of different medication regimens trying to figure this out. So it really got in the way of recovery. Um, and it was very deflating, you know, many times. In July of 2020, we spoke with former Marine Alec Bosignor Jimenez and his mother Katie about the military training injury that he incurred in 2015 and his long journey to a diagnosis of post-traumatic epilepsy nearly two years after the initial injury. My whole life, I always uh, have been interested in the military. Um, and so I joined the, the Marine Corps Infantry. Uh, and in the, in, the, in the infantry, they have sections. You have a, a rifleman, um, assaultman, uh, and machine gunner. I went the mortarman. Um, and essentially, it is just a, a tube that shoots a rocket up and down. Uh, and on that day, we were out on a training accident and we just had a, a bad round. Uh, so as a mortarman, you load around in the tube, you drop it and you duck your head below the muzzle. So you get away from any explosives that happen above the muzzle. Uh, unfortunately, I sat the round in the tube and I was waiting for the command to fire, uh, but it prematurely went off. It cooked off in the tube is what we call it. And the amount of, the only way for the pressure to release is up at the top. Um, so I was still looking directly at the top of the muzzle and my fingers were there. So it knocked off my fingers and I got a huge round of concussive to my head, concussion. I just remember everybody, you know, scattering, looking confused, uh, don't know what was happening. Uh, I got the corpsman down, he threw a tourniquet on me pretty quickly, uh, but we had to get everybody, you know, uh, an evac up to our site. Uh, and then once the evac brought me back to the main camp that we established, I had to hop on a helicopter over to the uh, Kaneohe Bay where Tripler, uh, the, air, uh, the army base, the medical base was. And I just remember, you know, being confused, scattered around, not sure really what was going on. I remember looking down at my hand and just seeing red. So I thought the whole hand got knocked off. Thank God it's just a couple of my digits shortened a little bit. Uh, the next, the next few days I was, you know, surgery. So I was under a lot of anesthesia. I couldn't tell you what happened after the next few days. She, she can tell you on that one. Well, and, and what happened quite quickly, you know, Alec actually is even the one that phoned me. Um, so I was in Florida. So within 24 hours, I was on the plane there. So I got to him pretty quickly. Um, and like Alec said, a lot of surgeries, a lot of debridements, a lot of saving fingers, saving his thumb. Um, there was no real test and no real discussion about any brain head trauma. Um, was there an MRI done? any sort of brain scan? Were you, did they discuss concussions, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic epilepsy with you? Because it was so visual, my hand was the, the issue. There was no attention really directed towards my head. I don't think that the story out on the field got um, well uh, written down because, you know, essentially you're supposed to duck below the muzzle where all the, the explosion comes from um, so I think they thought I'd duck below the muzzle and again, no real attention was paid, uh, directed towards my head. Uh, and I think, right. I think that the immediate concern was his hand. It was really saving his hand. The, you know, the, the extent of the damage, you know, that was to, that, that was the mission. That was the goal uh, when they got there and the, and the medical staff. So I don't recall ever 
them saying anything about an MRI. If they did, if they did one in the beginning, they didn't find anything because I was with him for the next 20 days in the hospital. There was no MRI. There was no discussion about head trauma. It was really his hand. Mm -hmm. Which was the visible injury. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you can see the logic in it. That is, that's the visible one that's there. When did you have your first seizure? Uh, The accident happened in May and my first seizure happened in December. So pretty quickly after, but again, it really didn't show much attention. I just was driven to the hospital, kind of treated and then sent back to the battalion that I was with. Did they give you any explanation as to why you might have had the seizure? I was, I was out at a, a, one of my, my friends at my battalion's house. We were having a few beers, just kicking back away from the Wounded Warrior Battalion is where they relocated me to. So they, I think they saw it more as, you know, we were, we were causing trouble, drinking uh, away from the staff. And they saw it as a, me doing something wrong instead of, relating it back to my injury. And, and he went by ambulance because his friend saw him, what we know now is a, was a tonic-clonic uh, seizure. He fell, he fell over, he had facial injuries, and I got the phone call from him You know, in, in the emergency room. I even remember speaking to the nurse. Um, they had him handcuffed to the gurney because he was angry. And we know that when people have seizures, they get angry, they get confused. That's typical for Alec. We know that now. Um, And it was described by the the friends he was with. It was two people. They described that it looked like he had a seizure. They drug tested him. They did all these things and said, we don't see anything in his system. And they released him. And that was They drug tested him, but they didn't do an MRI. They didn't. Mm -hmm. And they, I, I just don't understand that piece. You know, looking back, I mean, I'm, I'm hindsight 2020, you know, knowing what I know now, but we can't go back. We, we can't go back because that doesn't exist. That day doesn't exist. But it, it definitely wasn't unfortunate. But that was seizure number one. Mm-hmm. That was that clinical science that showed something major. I know just by looking back at that time, the confusion, his memory, he remembers not a lot of that time. We kind of had blamed it on the medication because he was on a lot of medication. I have to believe that I really do believe that he was already having some seizures. We just didn't see them. And then the next seizure happened. Um, it was definitely. How many years have gone by at this point or how much time? About a year and a half. Yeah, I think close to two, close to two years. I was medically retired from the, the military. Uh, just kind of now again, restarting life, essentially. Um, I selected a college back out in Colorado. Um, moving away from mom uh, after all, all this medical stuff being released. That, that was a hard pill to swallow being medically retired from the Marine Corps because that's what I wanted to be in. Um, so I picked a new career path. I'm motivated to get to Colorado, uh, move into my place. I just drove from Florida to Colorado with all my gear, moving into my apartment. My cousin came out to visit me um, and we were in what they call Cave of the Winds. It's a an attraction out in the mountains and I had a seizure uh, when we were doing a cave tour um, and I just remember I, I just think the, the load of stress that was happening at the time the transition in life still really kind of uh, grinding my gears a long drive but again yeah. it was a tonic clonic you know it was a big one of those those big seizures that you can't 
avoid. You know, you, you, you see them, you know they're happening. And, I, and I, I continue the position that had I known what to look for, I know that he's, he had, was having more than just these, mm-hmm. these big ones. These, these big events were just presenting, but I know what I know now about seizures and, and specifically Alec, um, there were other things present mm-hmm. that I just didn't know. We didn't know what they were to even um, identify those things at the time. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. And at that point, an MRI is done and you are diagnosed. Is that correct? At that point, I, they referred me to a neurologist out in Colorado. So that was the first time I got a really attention towards my head. I'm now in with the neurologist and she starts me on a light uh, prescription of Keppra. Uh, so now they're thinking, you know, I'm having seizures. I don't think I was diagnosed specifically at that point with epilepsy. But from then on, uh, my epilepsy really started ramping up. I was having, you know, the, the tonic clonics, you know, grand malls. Um, and we, we started gaining the knowledge of what we know now that, hey, this is a really big problem. Um, we need to, you know, give it more of a focus and treat it as, as a bigger problem. So I, I started getting prescribed medication um, and we just started testing out a lot of different things. How have the seizures affected your life? One, one big thing that I, I do want to put out to whoever watches this is I like to be a very independent person. And I, I, I do have a support team, but I don't ever really want to lie into their, their hands too much. Um, but there's been multiple times where, you know, I've come off a of medication out of frustration when, when, at the very beginning when stuff was ramping up um, and I would, I would just go off and try to be away thinking that moving or changing my locations is what's going to solve the issue. Um, And, you know, I end up in a hospital uh, not knowing where I'm at. uh, And, you know, my mom has to come. You can't do this alone. Um, It does definitely bring on some dark days. Uh, You know, you can't, go after certain things that you thought you wanted to, you have to take a slower pace at things, but everything is achievable just at the right speeds um, and with the right support system um, and relying on your team essentially. Thank you to all of our guests for sharing their insights and experiences. We want to take a moment to let our audience know that sadly, Alec Bosignor Jimenez passed away in early 2021 from an accident unrelated to epilepsy. As you heard in the excerpt from our conversation, Alec was a young man with a great love for his country who was determined not to let epilepsy control the course of his life. We honor Alec's determination and spirit as we continue our mission to advance research and find a cure for epilepsy. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions 
be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.